It's not too hard to be a follower. You know this. We learn it. It's instinctive, in fact, as children. We would play games like um, Follow the Leader or Simon Says. Remember Simon Says? Simon Says, put your hand on your head. Seriously, Simon Says, put your hand on your head. See, you all learn that game. They're in the same class. It's easy to be a follower. Put your hand on your head. Ah, oh, you're out. Yeah. <laughs> Follow the leader. Do what you're told. Do what the leader does. And we learn that instinctively. Well, we instinctively know that. And then we're taught it over and over. It's reinforced as children until you become an adolescent. And when you become an adolescent, your parents say, stop being a follower and be a leader, don't they? Right? And so uh, adolescent male or female comes home and um, has done something really stupid. And they begin to explain themselves, right? Well, you know. And then eventually the lamest excuse ever comes out. You know that one, right? Well, Bobby did it or Cindy did it. They were doing it too. It wasn't just me. I know you've never said that, but I said that back when I was a teenager, right? And, and you know what my mother said? Do you know you know what my mother said, don't you? If Bobby was jumping off a bridge, would you be jumping off a bridge with him, right? Don't be a follower, Joe. Be a leader. Do what you're supposed to be. The, be the one who does the right thing. Be a leader, and it's sage advice. Leadership is everywhere. I mean, People are, are writing books on leadership. If you go to um, websites, you know, Amazon or wherever, your bookstore, and you, you look for a... There, there's a section on leadership. And, and there's just a plethora of books in the last decade written. When, when I showed up as a doctoral student in 2005, there was a stack of books waiting for me, all on the same subject, all on leadership. Here, read these. You know, and so all these books. And so I started thinking about these and have been for some time now. And it occurs to me that all of them are books really on following. Stay with me. John Maxwell, number one selling book uh, probably in the world on leadership. 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. Subtitled, follow them and people will follow you. You want to be a great leader, be a follower. So that's what he's saying, right? Uh, Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. Let me give you seven people, emulate them, and you'll be a great leader. What? A great leader is a great follower, isn't it? Um, Coach John Wooden, How to Create a Winning Organization. Let me give you a model, the UCLA basketball team. Now follow this, and you'll be a leader. I don't know if anybody catches the irony as they're writing through these books, but the great Uh, Laws of leadership, it seems, really are paradigms about how to be a great follower. And so the gospel stories are all about Jesus, of course, but they're not just about Jesus, are they? They're about men and women who followed Jesus. I mean, all throughout the the, the narratives, I mean, they pick up and almost early on in all of them, it's come, follow me, come, follow me, Mark's gospel, come, follow me. And we learn a lot about the followers of Jesus, almost sometimes as much as we learn about Jesus. They're called mathetes in Greek, disciples. I thought it would be interesting to see what synonyms exist for disciple. So I went and I looked up synonyms in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. Acolyte, adherent, convert, follower, liege man. I don't think I've ever used liege man in a sentence in my life. Um, But there it is, right? Pupil. So on, partisan. 
I thought, well, what are what the antonyms are? What are the opposites of being a disciple? Anybody want to stab at a guess at what the opposite of a disciple is? A leader. The, uh, there were two, and one of them was leader. A leader is not a disciple. It's, in fact, the opposite of disciple. The disciples followed Jesus. They went where he went. They did what he did. They eventually taught others, but they taught others what? How to be good followers. And so with that in mind, I want to read to you a few passages from, from John's gospel just before we get to the passage that is in today's lesson. This one comes, um, you perhaps remember the story of Lazarus, uh, Jesus' friend who uh, has died. And Jesus shows up uh, four days after he's de- died. There's a funeral gathering around the tomb and he's there, okay? And he sees his sisters and so on. And John writes this about Jesus. Now, when Mary came to the tomb... Where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and those who had loved her coming also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit, listen to this, and greatly troubled. Now, next to chapter, chapter 12, Jesus is on his way into Jerusalem, triumphal entry. And there are people who come and they say, we would like to see Jesus. And he begins to have this little conversation with his friend Philip. That doesn't seem to answer the question, can we see Jesus? And he says this, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. I think Philip was a bit confused. They get to the upper room. They're in a a time together. And Jesus has been talking to them, telling them that he is about to die in chapter 13. And then verse 21, he says this. After saying these things, John writes, Jesus was troubled in spirit. He's troubled, he's troubled, he's troubled. You hear this, right? The same exact word, the gospel lesson today begins how? Let not your hearts be troubled. Why shouldn't they be troubled? They're good followers. Jesus is troubled. Of course they're troubled. Of course they're disturbed. Besides that, all this talk about death and suffering and dying is is deeply disturbing. To an individual. And you can't just turn emotions on and off. You know this all together well, don't you? I mean, suppose somebody says something very flattering to you. You know, they, they see you and they say, oh, you're, you're so beautiful. Or, oh, you know, I, I love your eyes. You have such beautiful eyes. Or they say to you, oh, my, you are so strong. You know, people say that to me all the time. Oh, gee, you are so strong. You know, you, you know how you feel inside, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, so, so good, yeah. It's, it's true, I, I, I admit it, yeah. Um, you, you have that, that sense of euphoria and flattery. Or suppose somebody says something rather nasty to you. You know, they come across and they, they say they, some snarky, unkind, crushing comment. And you feel wounded and hurt. You can't change how you feel in either case, can you? I mean, it just comes out. You just, you feel the way you feel. If somebody says something kind and you feel good, or somebody says something cruel and you feel hurt, it's not your control. Don't be troubled seems like, how can you say that? How can you say don't be troubled? Of course we're troubled, and we can't do anything to stop it. But there are ways in which you can hear this that are a little different. A young child comes running into her mother's room in the middle of the night, jumps up into the bed and says, Mommy, I'm scared. And a mother says to the child, There, there, don't be afraid. 
Well, of course the child's afraid. I mean, and the parent saying, there, there, don't be afraid, isn't simply saying that your, your emotions are foolish, but calm down, settle down, let me gather you. And then what does the parent do? She, he or she will go on and, and give reasons. There, there are no monsters under the bed. There are not. Oh, look, we'll go see. And they go in and they look under the bed and turn on the light and look in the closet. There are none in here either. And there's no reason. And this is what Jesus is saying to his friends. They're there. Don't be troubled. The words that, that I give to you are, should, should give you hope and confidence. In fact, even though I'm about to die, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And you know exactly where I'm going. You know how to get there. This is, it's going to be okay. And it sounds good right up into the point where he says, and you know how to get where I'm going. This is where Thomas jumps in and says, but Lord, actually, no, we don't. We don't know where you're going. We have no, you've been in that class, haven't you, in, in, in college or maybe in high school, when the teacher or the professor says, handing out the exams, that all you have to do is just remember the things that were on the study guide. And you go, wait, wait, there was a study guide? I mean, nobody told me there was a study guide. You, know, you, you get that little panic feeling and you look around for a friend. Is there anybody else that got the study guide? Because I didn't get the study guide. You know that one. I used to love to say that because I never hand out study guides. And, um, and there would always be some poor soul panicking. Of course there was a study guide. It was called a syllabus and a book and class notes. What were you doing? You know, we, Sleeping in the dorm, you know, get up and come to class. And you get that panicked feeling, right? How are we supposed to know where you're going? How could we possibly have known that? Listen to what Jesus says back to Thomas. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus says to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's kind of a tricky little translation here because... um, it's written in Greek, and, it, and the word and can mean also. I am the way, also the truth, also the life. And it also begs for an Aramaic sort of background. Jesus didn't speak this in Greek. He spoke it in Aramaic. So it was spoken in Aramaic, written down in Greek, and now translated into English. And so it gets a little bit fuzzy in here. But some have suggested, and I think with good argument, that Jesus is saying, I am the life-giving true way. I am the true life-giving way. This is all sort of one thing. I am, and more than that, the word for way is road. I'm the road that is the true and living road. So there's sort of this play on words between the metaphoric road and the literal one. I think what Jesus is saying is look at me. Look at what you've seen for three years. You do this, live like this, and you'll find your way home. This is the life that you want. This is the full life, the real life, the true life. Do this, there'll be no worry about whether you're on the right track or not. Be this way. Live this way. Now, I know, I know that we want to hear the sort of um, you know, doctrinal exclusivity. That sounds pretty fancy, doesn't it? Doctrinal exclusivity. There is no other way, no other religious way, no other. And, and sure, I absolutely believe that. But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying to his friends. He's rather saying to them, I want you to emulate me. This is the way to live the faithful life. And like when that professor hands out the 
the exams and the saying, the study guide, there's always somebody else who jumps in, right? You know, when, when Tom is saying, wait, I didn't get a study guide, all of a sudden Phil is in there saying, I didn't get one either, you know? I didn't get a study guide. I mean, where's my study guide? Philip jumps in. Look, show us the Father. Just show us what the Father looks like. Show us what God looks like, and, and, and that'll be just enough for us. Same answer, isn't it? Have I been so long with you and you have no idea what God looks like? Jesus is saying that he is the, is the image of God. This is the way God not looks in his face or in his, his bodily structure, but in his ethos, in his manner, in his way with humanity. That, that he is the life of God lived out in the world. Verse 7 in that, in that um, uh, section right there, Jesus says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father. If you had known me, you would have known what God is like. This is what God is like. He is the one who goes about looking for the broken and the downtrodden and mending their lives. Finding the one who is the outcast and making them part of the community. He's the one who takes as his disciples not the well-trained, not the well-bred, but fishermen, illiterate, unschooled, uncouth. And he brings them in and makes them part of the inner circle of his disciples, the ones who will become the apostles, the ones who will change the world. Eugene Peterson writes some great books, and if you ever get a chance, you should read some. He, he, as a pastor, translated the entire Bible. I mean, I don't know where he found the time. You know, and he, he translated the entire Bible. Um, he, he writes in a book called uh, Working the Angles. It's about being a pastor. He says... He says that he goes to these denominational clergy conferences and he's deeply disappointed because he finds that there are people there. Well, let me read to you from it. He says, it's bitterly disappointing to enter a room full of people like clergy type people who you may have every reason to expect share the quest and commitments of pastoral work and find within 10 minutes that they most definitely do not. They talk of images and statistics. They drop names. They discuss influence and status. Matters of God and the soul and scripture are not the grist for their mills. You know what? It's true. It's true even in the life of the church that, that there's this you know, hang up on, on what, means, what makes a successful church. You know? What is it about? Is it about how many people or how much money you've raised? Is this what makes for a successful church? And Peterson says, no, it's not about that at all. It's about a community of people who are following Jesus. Being formed into saints. That's what a successful church is. A successful church is a church filled with saints. And you say, oh my, we've got a long way to go. I know these people. That was a joke. (laughs) What is a saint? A saint is someone who is committed to following Jesus. That's it. Mother Teresa asked, well, what, what happens when she, you know, before she passed away? When you die, you know that there's going to be this rush for people to make you a saint. What do you think about that? She said, I think that God has called you to the same thing he's called me to. A life of holiness. That's what a saint is. Following Jesus is what he calls us all to do. That's the point. Jesus' exclusive claim is not about whether or not other people can find their way to heaven. That's another debate and another time. Right here what he's saying is, if you, my followers, want to find your way to heaven, live like me. 
in this world right now. This is the way that my people find their way home to heaven. Uh, Frederick Catherwood writes uh, about this young girl uh, called Becky in one of his books, and he says that, that Becky had this difficult time believing in God. He says, and, and she would say, you know, God, this is too big. The whole idea is just too fantastic, too enormous. I can't get my head around that, and, and so I don't think I believe in God or whatever. And, and she was a young girl, and so she says to him one day that she was out lying in the yard, and she looked down at all these little ants that were moving around her, and she was kind of watching them and, and thinking, I wonder if these ants, like, know that I'm here. And, and she kind of imagined what she looked like from their perspective, you know, just like this huge object, not a person at all. And so she says she scooped some up in her hand and she looked at them and, and, and you know, kind of got down a little close and could see them. Must not have been a squeamish girl. Saw them all running around in her hand. And, and she says, you know, I don't think they still realize that I'm here. They don't realize that I could squish them or let them go. You know, that their life is in my hand. And it was at that moment that she began to believe in God. Well, what if I'm an ant in the hand of God? And I can't see him. I, he's just too big for me to realize the, the personality and the power and, and, and the presence. So close and yet so far away. And she began to believe in God. And Catherwood says, we have more than that. We have the scriptures. We have the life of Jesus. And that we can be great leaders in this world by doing one thing. Being a follower. We could become great leaders in this world by doing one thing, being a follower of Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.